I saw that food was this kind of nexus, this knot where all of these issues come together around um, which neighborhoods have access to food, around systemic discrimination and inequities in the food system, around poverty, around health care. You're listening to Food by Design, an IDEO podcast, where we talk to the people who are building the food systems we'll need in the future, right now. We go where the questions are, looking at the gaps in the current systems, and share what we learn all to find out. What's next? We're here to start the conversations that can help make better food systems for every one of us. I'm your host, Sandeep Pahuja. In our last episode, we talked about the people who prepare and serve our food, people you might see every day as part of your routine. A server at your favorite restaurant, that barista that knows your order. And we talked about the ways in which sexism and the legacy of slavery impacts how restaurant workers are paid and how many of them struggle to get by. That struggle extends far beyond restaurants into the rest of our food system. Today we're talking about how decades of intentional policies have perpetuated inequity in our food system. Inequity that was created systemically by people in power and experienced mostly by Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. This inequity is exacerbated by climate change and capitalism. The modern food system is not a philanthropy. Uh, You don't just give away what you produce. You need to at least cover costs. You need to make a profit. That's Dr. Ricardo Salvador, director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. We met him way back in our first episode. He points out that the modern food system is a capitalist enterprise. Now, capitalism can do good things. Extend opportunity, grow individual wealth, incentivize innovation through competition. But capitalism has a power problem, and that problem has deep roots in our food system. So in agriculture, the way that looks is that you pay as little as possible for all of the inputs, and the people that work in the system, the owners of capital, because they see workers as inputs, then they pay as little as possible. They work hard to make it so they don't have to pay a penny more than they actually do. When labor in the food system is just a cost, a line item, workers are treated inhumanely. This inhumane treatment goes all the way back to the founding of America. When African Americans were emancipated in the 1850s, they were intentionally excluded from owning and operating their own farms, even though they held the nation's expertise in farming. Even after emancipation, these folks were explicitly excluded from participating in the economy that their labor helped to create. As the Civil War was coming to an end, a deal was struck in Georgia to take acres of Confederate land and army mules and give them to the formerly enslaved. But after the war ended, the promise of 40 acres and a mule was broken. The Confederate owners got their land back, and most of the freed people were forced to become sharecroppers working for their former owners. So they had skills that if they had been able to access land and if they'd been provided access to scientific knowledge 
and loans and support programs that the white farmers received at exactly that same period of history to create the modern food system would have created the food system that we have now or better. But instead of that, they were excluded from participating. As we discussed in our previous episode, this meant that black people ended up migrating away from farms in search of better lives. Many ended up working in the restaurant system, where labor has been intentionally kept cheap since emancipation. We have been creating people that are affluent, and at the same time, we've been creating people that are poor. And so all of that is a direct consequence of the way that the agricultural system in the United States was born. That system of slavery did not completely disappear. It has been transformed. It has evolved in a very sophisticated way. Today, many of the people who perform the labor in our food system, from harvest to distribution, are foreign-born or undocumented. And they're underpaid, denied overtime in healthcare, live in unsafe, overcrowded housing, and forced to continue to work in close quarters during a pandemic without masks or protection. And the crazy thing is, our food system depends on it. We still have people performing brutal labor under conditions most of us would find unacceptable. Brutal conditions like harvesting lettuce as smoke and ash from California fires blanket the fields. And here we see a connection to climate change because unpredictable weather produces more risk for farm workers. Ricardo says that marginalized people will not be able to shield themselves from climate change. They will feel the impacts first and worst. We've already been through the history of how we create immiserated people by having a food system that is owned, designed, and created for some of us, exploiting the rest of us. A system that's not for all of us, just for some of us. Millions of Americans experience this truth every day when they go to buy nutritious food for themselves or their families. And the only options they have are far outside their neighborhoods or are way more expensive than what they can afford. So that means that these stores will tend to locate in places where people have higher incomes. This is Dr. Hannah Garth, an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of California, San Diego. Hannah studies failures of the food system and the places where it creates inequality in food access. These inequalities often break down along racial and income lines. For years, when people talked about areas bereft of quality grocery stores, they called them food deserts. That word, desert, conjures up images of places that are barren and devoid of life. What it fails to communicate is that the systemic inequities that communities face are not the product of chance, but of intentional choices designed this way. Language matters, and that's why another phrase was coined instead food apartheid. It was made popular by the renowned farmer and community activist Karen Washington. Food apartheid gives you a sense that the choices that made the system what it is were intentional and deliberate. Here's Hannah again. If we start thinking of it as food apartheid and we stop thinking of it as a food desert, then you know, what apartheid is is essentially a system of separate and unequal. Um, so we see certain kinds of markets and certain forms of food access available only to 
um, basically wealthy populations. And then we see a completely different set of foods that are available to lower income populations. From the outside, it may seem like these communities don't have high quality food. That's how food desert sounds, like there's nothing growing there. But it doesn't recognize or value the incredible vibrancy and life that thrives in these communities. Food desert is a kind of paternalistic phrasing, and it carries another association, that it might take outsiders, well-meaning white outsiders, to save such communities. That's white savior syndrome. People make great efforts to get the right food for their lives. Hannah has surveyed residents of South Los Angeles about the lengths that they need to go to in order to find nutritious food for their families. They're constantly having to think about, you know, when am I going to be in the area where the good markets are? When am I going to be able to access the food that I need to feed my family healthy food? If I don't hit Trader Joe's on Friday on the way home from work, I'm not going to want to drive, you know, way out to this community on the weekend while I'm at my home in South Los Angeles. Hannah told us about one woman who improvises how she gets food for her family. She commutes to a higher-income part of L.A. by taking the metro and two bus lines. Getting higher-quality produce from the nicer markets near her work is nearly impossible because she would have to carry it all home on public transportation. So she's found alternatives. She is a very involved member of her church. And many of the women in her church prepare foods and sell them to families. They'll prepare enough food for a family of four for three days, and they they sell them to each other. She also eats high-quality fresh food through fruteros, the people who sell cut fruit on street corners. Fruit like mango and watermelon that's delicious, healthy, and affordable. And she consumes these fruits on a daily basis, usually on her commute. Um, And so that's another area where she's consistently eating healthy food, but it's not purchased at a market. The people who study food habits and analyze purchase data will miss consumption like this. There are many groups of people creating food systems that are trying to separate from the industrial, capitalistic one that is failing them. One antidote to food apartheid is food sovereignty, a person's right to healthy and culturally appropriate food. Ideally, people will have control over that means of food production at the same time. But in order to do all that, you need land. A farm, maybe. Soulfire is a Black and Indigenous-centered community farm. And we are committed to uprooting racism and ceding sovereignty in the food system. So not very small goals. Larissa Jacobson is co-director at Soulfire Farm in upstate New York. We met her in our third episode about the indigenous roots of regenerative agriculture. Earlier in her life, she worked with immigrants in Brooklyn. She became aware of how not having access to culturally relevant, nourishing food can impact someone's well-being. I saw that food was this kind of nexus, this knot where all of these issues come together. Soulfire is rethinking how farming works while helping secure land access, land tenure, and land grants for Black, Indigenous, and other farmers of color. 
we're focusing on economic incentives for farmers to enact soil-friendly practices and care for the land and care for the soil carbon, and also for research and learning to be happening at many of these small farms where people are uplifting these ancestral practices. Before COVID, they led in-person training for black and brown aspiring farmers. Their food sovereignty programs reach over 10,000 people a year. The training begins by stripping away the narrative of land ownership and subjugation, and the history of being separated from this important source of identity and power. And we work in ways to reclaim our collective right to belong to the land, to have agency in the food system, and to heal this relationship with growing our own food and medicine. Agency is critical to everything Soul Fire Farm does. That idea anchors the food system they're creating, and it's one that inspires me. Here's a few of the things they're working on and advocating for. We focus on reparations to people whose land and labor was stolen to create the current food system. We have food justice workshops. We distribute some of our harvest for people living under what we call food apartheid. Just like Ricardo and Hannah, Larissa thinks the way to address inequalities in food access is to design a system that exists outside of the current for-profit structure. Capitalism doesn't have to be terrible. There's no rule in the capitalist handbook that says people must be exploited and marginalized. But capitalism in the food system has failed people for generations, especially communities of color. So Soulfire thinks a way forward is to design a system that doesn't have capitalism at its center. They support people living under food apartheid in their local community with no-cost deliveries of vegetables, fruits, medicine, and eggs. And that's different from what we see from agribusinesses or industrial farming in this day and age where we see individuals or corporations uniquely profiting off of what the earth is yielding in terms of its bounty. They build on a long legacy of Afro-Indigenous farming and economic systems that prioritize people and the earth over profit. And part of reclaiming that regenerative agriculture, reclaiming the land, re-indigenizing the soil, is calling the life and the carbon back in through, through what is now known as regenerative agriculture. Soulfire Farm also offers a climate-resilient workshop where aspiring farmers are invited to talk about the very real effects of climate change they see in their communities and how that is affecting their families. This workshop focuses on ways to help them cope with the current challenges they may face, whether that's floods, fires, or heat waves. Our relationship to climate change is one of both ensuring that that our communities, that black and brown communities, have the very real and concrete tools to be climate resilient, to face the challenges ahead, and that there is systemic change that is addressing the ways that climate change disproportionately impacts communities of color in this country and all over the world. Climate change has become a threat multiplier for these communities. Our last guests for the series knows this better than most. And she sees a grim future if we don't act now. The other thing that we haven't talked about much today at all is 
Imagine that we don't decarbonize. That's Dr. Shazine Atari, also known as Shaz. What does the future look like when we need deep adaptation and we need to adapt to a world that's warmed by three degrees or four degrees? Shaz is an associate professor at Indiana University Bloomington, where she studies climate change and human behavior. Shaz understands that the inequities in our food system and the pending climate crisis will make things even worse for those most marginalized. And I think that's a really important problem. Like, what do our food systems look like? And how do we make sure the weakest in our society is still protected? Shaz's research points to a logic gap. Her study participants say that climate change is the most important problem in the world right now. And yet, those same participants said it isn't the most important problem in the U.S. They say it will be at some point in the future. But the problem with that is that the future never happens now. So how do you make the future happen today so that people can understand that it's a problem that we need to start solving today? Think about everything that's going on in people's lives, maybe in your life. Unemployment or stagnating wages, the rising costs of childcare, education, and healthcare, the crushing realities of systemic racism. It kind of makes sense that climate change wouldn't be on the top of somebody's mind. But climate change is making all of those things so much worse. To think about a metaphor, it's do you want to treat the cancer or the bullet wound? And so it's almost always going to be the bullet wound. And so people are really focused on the present, and they don't view climate change as sort of a bullet wound to the environment. We have to see things as they are, see climate change as it is, and do something about it. One small piece of hope from Shaz's research, most Americans want less carbon in their energy. And that's across the board, conservatives and liberals. I live in Oakland, California, and it is a beautiful place. But on Wednesday, September 9th, 2020, the sun didn't come out. You probably saw the memes. It looked like a scene out of Blade Runner because it was dark all day and the sky was orange. The wildfires in California blanketed the entire West Coast with so much smoke that the sun literally could not shine through. Five of the six worst California wildfires on record happened in the last few months. I think we're going to break that record again really soon. When once-in-a-lifetime events start to happen annually, something is really wrong. It was hard to do this series and not feel fatalistic about everything. Because just 100 fossil fuel companies worldwide are responsible for 71% of our emissions. Many people don't realize that the term carbon footprint was created by oil companies and their ad agencies as a PR move to shift responsibility to you as an individual. Or that even with the massive one-time reduction in emissions related to COVID, we're still projected to be facing a climate disaster. I try to be optimistic, even though it's hard. These feelings of grief for our planet came up for me and our guests in every conversation. But seeing how they're designing equitable and nourishing food systems that are positive for our climate, that's incredibly inspiring. And it gets me excited about the work that we need to do. But where do we start? What should we do first? 
Do we put our efforts into regenerative agriculture and raising cattle differently? Find ways to get more out of less? Should we try to make kelp mainstream? Or nudge people to make better decisions? Or do we fight for equity in restaurants and in the rest of our food system? The truth is, and if you take nothing else away from this whole series, we need to do everything. We need to try it all. We need to build on the amazing ideas and new-to-the-world food systems that people are designing. All the ideas you've encountered here, they need more attention, more funding, more support, and they need your ingenuity. And especially in countries like the U.S., they need your vote. Just about everyone I talk to underline that voting is the one thing that you, yes, you, can do to make change. So people need to vote, everyone, including me. The first thing I did as a citizen was register to vote. We need to hold leaders and corporations and systems accountable. A better food system is always on the ballot. So here's the design opportunity from the series, and it's a really small one. How might we build a climate-positive food system that favors the many instead of the few? If this gets your wheels turning and makes you excited to share ideas, thoughts, or maybe even better questions, visit ideo.com food and help us keep working to create better food systems for everyone. If you want more narrative podcasts from IDEO, please send this to a friend and leave us a perfect rating and a review. You know the algorithms love that. I'm Sandeep Pahuja. This is Food by Design. The show was created by Sarah Cadraro and me. Today's episode was produced by Evan Roberts and edited by Julia Scott. Mark Henry Phillips composed our original music. Chris Hoff is our engineer. Special thanks to Dr. Liz Carlisle and Dr. Ashanti Reese. Thank you for going on a journey with us. We would love to stay in touch with you, so please visit our website and drop us a note. This series would not have been possible without the support and guidance from so many amazing people. First, our incredible production team is Tina Antolini, Julia Scott, and Evan Roberts. We have so many people at IDEO to thank. Tian Dow, Mani Nilciani, Melanie Bloom, English Taylor, Nadia Walker, Deb Stern, Alice Huang, Holly Bybee, Rachel Maloney, Annie Svigals, Aaron McCluskey, Stacey Fenton, Mija Jacobs, Judy Shu, Rebecca Chesney, and Jeff Schwarten. Extra special thanks with a cherry on top and one more cowburf for Alex Galifant, Stuart Getty, Alex Pabian, Katie Clark, Devin Peak, Sage Perry, Jamie Brown, Sarah Rich, Madison Mount, Ilya Prokopov, Margaret Kessler, Linda Deacon, Vivian Barad, and the rest of the absolutely amazing IDEO food team. And to Ben and Allie for having two podcast babies with us during production. And of course, Sarah Cadraro, the best thought partner, and without you, this wouldn't have been possible, especially because of those amazing Excel spreadsheets that kept us all on task. This has been Food by Design an IDEO podcast.